It's a real pleasure and honour for me to be introducing our second speaker, our second uh, Lakatoshi Award winner for 2006, uh, Harvey Brown from the University of Oxford. Uh, Harvey began as a physicist and then uh, converted to philosophy of science via the old and much lamented uh, Chelsea College, um, uh, but now part of King's College, but no longer doing uh, having a separate department of history and philosophy of science, which he had then, headed by Heinz Post and also in it various notables such as John Dawling, I'm glad to see in the audience. Um, Harvey went there in 1971 and uh, rapidly became a, uh, a force to be reckoned with there. I was then at the LSE as a graduate student and that we were effectively a joint department. There was the Popper Seminar on Tuesdays at the LSE, there was the Heinz Post Seminar on Thursdays, I think, uh, at Chelsea and the students went backwards and forwards and there was a good deal of discussion. So it's a real personal pleasure for me, apart from anything else, uh, that Harvey's uh, won, this, uh, won, won this award and very much deserves to have won this uh, award jointly with Hassett. So I won't say any more now because I'll be uh, speaking at inordinate length uh, at the uh, reception when I give the, uh, not inordinate length, don't worry, uh, at, at the reception when I, when I actually formally present the, the, the awards uh, and to just uh, go straight ahead and ask Harvey uh, to, to give his Lakatos Award lecture under the title 100 Years of Relativity what remains controversial for the philosopher. Harvey. John, thank you very much for that very warm welcome. It is indeed an honor for me to be here, and it's a special honor for me to follow Hasek Chang onto this podium. Hasek really has written a wonderful book. There are many slogans in the philosophy of science, like the theory-ladenness of observation, or the, the idea that operationalism is a bad thing. But Hasek never lets armchair abstractions outstrip recognition of actual scientific practice. He stresses how much hard labor goes into establishing even the most basic notions in science, such as, for example, the fixed points in the temperature scale. Anyone who knows anything about the struggles that planetary astronomers had in discovering inertial frames so that they could apply Newton's theory of gravity to the planets will immediately sympathize with Hasek's notion of epistemic iteration. And I do not know why this notion has taken so long to be recognized. Hasek's blend of history and philosophy of science is masterful and I congratulate him on his important and fascinating study. And I will never look at my electric kettle in the same way again. <laughs> if I could also just start with a slightly autobiographical remark. I didn't start out by thinking about, by working in relativity, I started out by working, doing research in quantum mechanics. And when I went to Oxford, I was asked to give a course on the foundations of special relativity, and never, I think, in the history of the subject was there a novice lecturer who was more confused and nervous about the subject. But I think confusion is a good thing. I think the best definition I've ever come across of research is that research is being in a constant state of confusion. And so I'm very grateful to Oxford and to the many students that I've taught there over the years who have foreborne the attempts that I've made to understand the subject and to absolutely fall in love with it. Of course, it helps if you hate to give a lecture that you don't really understand, 
I know that some of my students are here today, and they'll probably think to themselves, well, you can't hate it that much. <laughs> but it has been a wonderful process of discovery for me. I was trying to think of a good t title to this, to this lecture, and I, I came up with 100 Years of Relativity. After all, it's just over 100 years since Einstein's first 1905 paper. So I wrote, what remains controversial for the philosopher? But then I thought, maybe that's not the point at all. After all, there is a book. If you'll excuse me for a minute, I'm going to switch to my laptop. Everything that I was going to say is really something that came up in my book. You know, it's a, I mean, relativity has been around a long time. And a great deal has been understood. And there are many wonderful books on relativity. Who in their right minds would want to write another one? So I'm, I thought today I would try to give you some sense to some of the issues, at least, that came up that made me want to write this book. And it's rather remarkable, by the way, how much profundity you can get on refrigerator magnets. Before anything else, I want to mention some collaborators. These are people, of course, there were an enormous number of people that were in, very influential in the way that I thought and went about studying the subject. Um, I, I do want to mention, by the way, Julian Barber and Jiva Anandam as two enormous sources of influence in my thinking. But those who actually collaborated with me on publications that are related to the work, Catherine Brading, Peter Holland, Adolfo Maia Jr. from Brazil, Roland Sippel, Christopher Simpson, and most especially of all, Oliver Pooley, who helped me develop some of the more conceptual ideas in the book. So I want to start with special relativity. And this is a picture of Albert Einstein roughly at the age which he came up with his 1905 paper. He was still a, a clerk at the patent office in uh, Bern in Switzerland. And I want to say something about some historical points and something about the role of geometry and special relativity to start with. If you take a solid body and you make it travel at a rather large speed, something that's comparable to the speed of light, it's, it's going to undergo a contraction in its physical spatial dimensions. Similarly, if you take two clocks, for example, two localized ideal clocks, and you synchronize them, and you let them go in their merry ways and bring them back together again, and they want at least one of them, maybe both of them, attain speeds, again, very close to the speed of light, there's going to be a remarkable difference in the time that they read when they come back together again. They will no longer be synchronized. And of course, that's an application of time dilation. And the first phenomenon I mentioned is length contraction. Of course, for ordinary speeds, such as the ones that we're familiar with, these effects are minuscule. They're virtually negligible. And so you might wonder, why are we interested in them? Because they form the basis of a complete revolution of the way that we think about space and time. Now, think of length contraction, for example. A rigid body, when it's put into motion, undergoes a change of its length. But a rigid body, if it rotates, from my perspective, also undergoes a change in its length. It looks to me as if it's getting shorter. And sometimes, in fact, it's remarkable how many times philosophers of physics and physicists say that length contraction really is just a perspectival effect. 
It just follows what's sometimes called the relativity of simultaneity special relativity. But if you construct two rockets, let's say they're pointing vertically and you put one on top of the other, and you construct a rigid but very thin wire between them that holds them together, and you fire them vertically, and you instruct the pilots in these rockets that from the point of view of the ground frame, the ground observer, always to maintain a constant distance, in due course, that very thin wire will break. This is not perspectival, it's a fact. Why does it happen? Because under ordinary circumstances, that joint system of the two rockets with a wire between them would want to contract, just as special relativity predicts. But because you've instructed the pilots of those two rockets to maintain a constant distance between them, you have to work against the contraction and you're going to break, break the wire. Length contraction is real. It's just as real as time dilation. Time dilation, the fact that moving clocks run slow, that's the sort of the slogan. That's also real because you can do experiments, as I said before, with two clocks that come back together again and they read different times. There's also an effect in general relativity, which general relativity I'll come back to later, where the rate of a clock depends on its height, say, in the gravitational field of the Earth. Both time dilation and general relativity both have to be accounted for, compensated for when you turn on your sat-nav system and your GPS system in your car. That technology is so sophisticated, it, it compensates for both time dilation and the so-called gravitational redshift of clocks. How do we understand these effects? Let's look at a little bit of history first. Einstein did not discover length contraction. The extent to which you understand time dilation is controversial, and I'll come back to that later. But let's just think of length contraction. In 1889, two years after the famous Michelson-Morley experiment, probably one of the most famous experiments in the history of physics, George Francis Fitzgerald speculated that the reason that this particular experiment, this optical experiment, produced the result that it did was because the stone block that the mirrors and this optical system were mounted on, which were moving with respect to the ether, undergoed some kind of contraction, deformation. I stress the word deformation, actually, rather than contraction. He was also the first to think, on the basis of electrodynamical principles, that the speed of light was a limiting speed. This is well before Einstein. Hendrik Antoon Lorentz, the greatest of all the ether theorists, the late 19th century, early 20th century, independently discovered exactly the same effect, spatial deformation of moving rigid bodies. This is several years before Einstein. He also partially predicted time dilation. This is something that's not well known in the literature. In fact, a French physicist called Leonard had suggested that you redo the Michelson-Morley experiment. I don't have time to go into it. Many of you will know what that is. You redo the Michelson-Morley experiment, but instead of having just air between the mirrors and the, and the source of light, you have everything immersed in some kind of substance that's transparent to light that has a, a refractive index, maybe something like water. Would you expect to get the same result? Now, 
Both Fitzgerald and Lorenz had predicted the result that you do get in the ordinary case by saying that something very strange happens to the stone block that this, these optical instruments are sitting on. Because they're moving with respect to the luminiferous ether, something happens to their shape. But now, if the same effect is going to be observed when you have all the optics taking place in a transparent medium, there must be something more to it, because length contraction or spatial deformation will not be enough. And what more do you need? You need to claim that the source of light, which are these oscillating electrons that are producing electromagnetic waves, must undergo a time dilation because the object is moving. Finally, Joseph Larmor, in 1857, I, I beg your pardon. Notice, by the way, that all of these three figures were born in the, in the um, 1850s, which was a wonderful decade for physics. There are many others I could mention. But look at, this, look at the range of their, of their deaths. Fitzgerald died in 1901, lamentably at the age of 49. Lorenz died in 1928. Larmor died in 1942. Larmor was the first person before the turn of the century, who wrote down the Lorentz transformations, which are the mathematical basis of special relativity. And he also partly predicted, and he was the first really to predict length contraction as we know it, because it was a special case of this deformation, this family of possible deformations that Fitzgerald and, Le and Lorentz had predicted, had hypothesized. And he also met, realized that if you have two charges of op opposite sign and they, and they orbit each other and you put that system into motion, the period of the orbit, the frequency of the orbit also is going to undergo a change just because of its motion with respect to the ether. And that's time dilation for a very special clock. Now, I want to just say something quickly about Fitzgerald. <coughs> because how did, how did they come up with this idea? It wasn't just ad hoc. It wasn't just a way of saying something strange must be happening to rigid bodies in order to explain the Michelson-Morley experiment. There were good reasons for it. And in the case of Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald was thinking of a result that was due to the great English autodidact, Oliver Heaviside. Because Oliver Heaviside had come up with a result that goes something like the following. Take a single charge, let's say it has spherical symmetry, little sphere of charge, and ask yourself, according to Maxwell's equations of electrodynamics, what the electrostatic field is associated with a stationary charge. Well, of course, the field line is going to come out radially, and the surface of equipotential is going to be a sphere. That's not only intuitively obvious, it's a consequence of Maxwell's equations. Now what happens if you put the charge in motion? Well, actually, this is quite a difficult problem to solve. Well, it's not a trivial problem to solve using Maxwell's equations. And Heaviside came up with the answer. Actually, he more or less guessed it. You won't find a proof in his paper, but he guessed it right. And what happens is the field surrounding that charge undergoes a deformation when it's in motion. And this is just a consequence of Maxwell's equations. In other words, it gets thinner in the line of motion. It gets squashed in the line of motion. And Fitzgerald thought to himself, Fitzgerald knew about this result because they were communicating by letters, and he thought to himself, but wait a minute. What if the forces inside a rigid body, likewise, between the constituent parts of that rigid body, likewise undergo a deformation 
when the body's in motion? What is shape, shape change? But that's exactly what you need in order to explain the Mikusamori experiment. Now, another great figure, of course, really one of the truly great giants of physics and mathematics, mathematics, applied mathematics at the turn of the century, and pure mathematics, of course, was Henri Poincaré, again, having one of the figures born in the 1850s in the great decades of physics. What did he do? He understood the conventional nature of distant simultaneity, which was an absolutely essential point in Einstein's route to special relativity. He realized that simultaneity, there's a degree of conventionality of simultaneity, even in Newtonian mechanics. Now, this is a rather controversial <coughs> issue, and I go into it in some length in my book, but I won't, go, I won't discuss it now. He also understood the relativity of simultaneity, which, of course, is, a, is one of the chief features of, of Einstein's relativity theory. He understood what Lorentz had introduced as local time, but didn't understand its significance. He anticipated Einstein's relativity principle, and along with both Lorentz and Larmor, almost all the equations of Einstein's special theory of relativity. And last but not least, he anticipated a good part of Minkowski's geometrization of the theory. Now, anyone who studies special relativity these days understands that special relativity describes a four-dimensional space-time geometry which has certain non-Euclidean features, very non-trivial geometry. It's not a curved geometry, but it's a non-Euclidean geometry. And, and Poincaré, around 1905, 1906, had already predicted a good part of what, Min what's, what Minkowski was later to enshrine in his, in his papers in 1908 and 1909. The marriage of space and time into a fundamental four-dimensional continuum and the understanding of the Lorentz transformations themselves as generalized rotations in a four-dimensional space. This was understood by, by Poincaré. <coughs> so what did Einstein do? Well, what would have happened without Einstein? One of the, what, what uh, Richard Feynman would call the monster minds in our field, John Stachel, tremendous authority on the history and foundations of relativity theory, asked himself this question, and his answer was this. The work of Lorentz, Poincaré, and others suggests that without Einstein's contribution, the consensus version may not have made a clear distinction between kinematic and dynamic effects, but interpreted such things as length contraction, time dilation, and the increase of mass with velocity. This isn't something that I've mentioned so far as dynamical effects caused by motion relative to the ether frame. In other words, people would have understood length contraction, which was widely accepted by 1905, and time dilation, which was not very well understood, actually, but it was in the air, as simply being the effects of the action of ether, motion through the luminiferous ether, on the constituent parts of these bodies rather than the way that Einstein discussed them as so-called kinematical effects. I'll come back to that in a moment. Emphasis would then have been placed on factors leading to the undetectability of absolute velocity. That's to say, once you have these effects, 
if all the objects in your laboratory have been affected by this way, all the rulers, the rods, the solid bodies, all the clocks in your laboratory have been affected like this, it turns out as a consequence that you cannot tell you're moving with respect to the ether. There's a kind of a conspiracy that prevents you from detecting absolute motion with respect to the ether. And of course, this is exactly what the Nicholson-Morley experiment was about, amongst many others. So there would have been emphasis on the undetectability of absolute velocity rather than on the complete equivalence of all inertial frames, which is the relativity principle. And I think this is just, I was going to say dead wrong. It's partly right, but there's a sense in which I think it's very wrong. If you go back and look carefully at the writings of the ether theorists, and you ask yourself a very simple question, where does the ether appear in their arguments? You can't find it. Well, here's the where it comes in. It, the ether, which is supposed to be the medium through which electromagnetic waves propagate as a kind of a mechanical disturbance, the ether defines a, a frame of reference, a coordinate system, relative to which Maxwell's equations are valid. That's what the ether is doing. It's allowing you to say, well, at least there's a one particular coordinate system relative to which Maxwell's equations of electrodynamics are valid, and then you can use the heavy side type result, and you can start predicting what's going to happen to moving bodies, assuming that the forces amongst between the constituent parts of the moving bodies are something like electromagnetic forces. In fact, today we know they are essentially electromagnetic, but not entirely. But you don't know what the ether frame is. So in principle, you could have chosen any frame. All that you need are Maxwell's equations. So the work that's being done in these arguments is not the ether acting on something. It's just ordinary old Maxwell's equations, the equations we know and love today and we regard as relativistic. These dynamical arguments do not really put any... The ether does no real work. It does no real work in, these, in this approach. The work is being done by the fundamental equations of our best theory of electrodynamic phenomena. And Einstein was well aware of this. And Einstein, for example, never once said that his notion of length contraction was fundamentally different from the notion of length contraction that came out of the work of Lorentz, Fitzgerald, Larmor, and Frankel. So let me just say a quick word about what it, what, it, what it was that Einstein did do. Well, Einstein understood time dilation as a universal phenomenon. This had never been seen before. <coughs> On the left here, we have just a little space-time diagram that corresponds to the motion of two um, professors. Professor Kaluza is the stay-at-home type. So this is his so-called world line, he's not moving through space, just through time. And Professor Kaluza has an ideal clock, and each one of these points represents a tick of the clock along the time axis. Now, his great friend, Professor Klein, has decided to do a trip using exactly the same clock, so Professor Klein is moving through space and time. So in other words, he's moving away from Professor Kaluza, using the same clock, but notice that the number of ticks on Professor Klein's clock are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 
two, three, four, five, six. Where, the num where is the number of clicks on Professor Kalunza's clock at 10? So Professor Klein's clock is reading less time than Professor Kalunza's, even though they're built out of exactly the same material. And of course, this effect requires, unfortunately, that Professor Klein be traveling rather close to the speed of light. And this is now a well-known effect. This is the clock retardation effect due to time dilation and it's well established in physics. Einstein realized that this effect was a result of the so-called Lorentz transformations. I don't want to say an enormous amount about this, but th these so-called kinematic or coordinate transformations were in all of the papers of Lorentz and Poincaré for, for several years but they simply didn't understand the operational significance of these equations. So one of the truly important things that Einstein did was to understand what, what coordinate transformations between inertial frames mean. Because this effect, this clock retardation effect, is a consequence of this last equation that relates to temporal parameters in two relatively moving coordinate systems. And that's something that Einstein understood. But notice, by the way, that this looks a little bit like if this was something like uh, a graph on the surface of, say, a piece of paper or on the surface of the Earth, it looks like two trips on the surface of the Earth. So we could imagine that Professor Klein is moving from one point to another on the surface of the Earth, and Professor Klein makes a different trip. And then the, anal the analogy with a clock would be a hodometer on a car or an odometer, the thing that that, read, that reads the mileage. And so we would say in Euclidean geometry that that distance is smaller than that distance just because of the nature of Euclidean geometry. But now if you think of this in terms of space-time rather than time, the clock is, as it were, reading distance, but now the relationship between the two distances is exactly the opposite. The crooked line is actually a shorter distance as measured by the clock than the longer line. This device here is a very nice example of a device you can find in the History of Science Museum in Oxford, and you can find similar devices in the Whipple Museum in Cambridge. And it's called a Wayweiser. They were developed at the end of the 17th, I beg your pardon, the end of the 18th, early 19th centuries. And they were used to measure the lengths, the distances along roads between towns. You simply attach this to the back of a carriage. Of course, the number of revolutions of the wheel will, measure, will be proportional to the distance, and the number of revolutions will be reported on this device. <coughs> and of course, the person that built this device had a premonition of relativity. Because what does that remind you of? Doesn't that look like a clock? And what a clock is in special relativity is simply a wayweiser of paths in space-time. The clock is measuring distances in space-time in the same way that a wayweiser measures distances in, in space. But now the geometry is different because the crooked line turns out to be to, turns out to be shorter than the straight line. Einstein also realized that in his derivation of the time dilation effect, he was using thermodynamics as a template. He was using what he called the principal theory approach rather the constructive theory approach. It was very different in style to the way that Lorentz and Fitzgerald were thinking about the origins of length contraction and time dilation. 
And every time Einstein mentioned thermodynamics as a template, the connection between his special relativity theory and thermodynamics, he used it to specify the limitations of his approach and not its strengths. The limitations of his approach. The reason that he used a thermodynamic style approach based on principles like the relativity principle and the light postulate was because he thought he couldn't do better. There weren't enough understood, there wasn't enough knowledge of the fundamental forces between the constituent parts of rigid bodies and clocks in order to build a satisfactory, truly satisfactory account of length contraction and time dilation. That's a whole other story, and it's spelled out in possibly pitiless detail in the book. I won't go into it here. Let's go on to general relativity. General relativity, of course, is the theory that Einstein developed 10 years later, roughly 1915, 1916. It's a theory of gravity, although I should stress from the beginning that gravity, rather like boiling in Hasek's story, is not a fundamental term. It's very difficult to pin down and is probably not worth doing. There are other very fundamental things in the theory of GPT. And this is a portrait of Einstein made roughly at the time that he developed general relativity. Let me just start with a, a letter that Einstein wrote in 1954. This was a year before his death. He writes to a friend, you consider the transition to special relativity as the most essential thought of relativity, not the transition to general relativity. I consider the reverse to be correct. I see the most essential thing in the overcoming of the inertial system, a thing that acts upon all processes but undergoes no reaction. The concept is in principle no better than that of the center of the universe in Aristotelian physics. What does Einstein mean? Consider the problem of a free body. Consider the problem of an object that's so far away from other objects that it doesn't suffer any effective forces acting on it. It's going to move, as it were, under its own steam. How, what, how does it know what to do? Newton's first law of motion says that it moves in a straight line at a uniform speed. And the question is, with respect to what? And now we start to face what is fundamentally a circularity issue that's virtually identical to the circularity issues that Hasek mentioned in his talk. So ultimately, one what has to say is something like the following. Take all the force-free bodies in the universe, bar none. Take all of them. All those bodies that are as far away from other bodies as possible so that they can, can be considered to be moving on, under their own steam. Then, it is a very, very non-trivial thing that you can find a frame of reference, a perspective, or a coordinate system relative to which they all move in a very simple way. That's to say in straight lines and at uniform speeds. That's a very, very non-trivial thing. In fact, when you think about it, it's kind of miraculous. Why should bodies as far away as you like from each other decide to move in this concerted fashion, when they cannot possibly be talking to each other because they're free. The minute you start introducing an interaction between bodies, the forces are involved, they're, not, they're no longer free. Inertia, in other words, this property of bodies under their own steam to move in straight lines and at uniform speeds, 
is really a very, very remarkable thing. It's the simplest law in physics, and it's probably the most puzzling. And Einstein thought to himself, at one stage, not from the, necessarily from in 1905, but somewhere between 1905 and 1915, he thought to himself, if there is a cause for this, it must be in the structure of space and time itself. Space-time, in other words, must have ruts in it. These, some, these are sometimes called affine geodesics. Geodesics, which mean lines that are straight with respect to some mathematical structure of space-time. And these ruts, as it were, capture the free particles, and the free particles move along these ruts. So space-time is the explanation, the structure of space-time. But the trouble is, space-time is telling the particles what to do, but the particles don't act back on the space-time. Now, Leibniz would not have been very happy. In fact, no one is very happy in physics when you introduce a principle by which body A acts on body B, but body B doesn't act back on body A. This is the action-reaction principle. It's not written in stone. You will not commit a mortal sin by denying it. It's not even a logical inconsistency to deny it. But it seems very, very well established in physics. So Einstein said, we've got to get rid of this principle of inertia that has to do with the existence of these privileged inertial frames, coordinate systems, that seem to tell the bodies what to do because they're not being acted back upon by the body. General relativity is a theory in which the action-reaction principle is restored. One of the remarkable things about the history of general relativity is that when you really try to understand what it is about general relativity that makes the action-reaction principle work, and by this I mean trying to define what you mean by the absence of absolute objects, like the space-time structure, it's very, very difficult. So this is just a reminder that sometimes in physics we make great progress by using ideas we barely understand. So let me go on and say the, the, the last things about general relativity. Forget about where general relativity came from. The best encapsulation and words of the nature of Einstein's field equations for gravity are probably those famous words of Ms. Nathona Wheeler, space tells matter how to move, matter tells space how to curve. And what does that mean? It means that you posit a certain structure, which is represented by, and formally is represented by the so-called tensor field, the metric tensor field, which is this object here, this capital G, mu nu are just indices of this tensorial object, but just think of it as something in the first instance rather akin to the electromagnetic field. And it's going to be proportional to another tensor field, which just means a field that has many components, in this case, 10 components. And that represents the presence of matter. So physical objects that are distinct from space-time space itself. It may even be electromagnetic fields, things built up out of electromagnetic fields or other fields. And if you change the, the amount of matter locally, you're going to change this metric structure and vice versa. Now, in what sense does space act on matter? Space tells matter how to move. And this is a beautiful story because when Einstein discovered general relativity, 
he still didn't really understand how it worked. And the reason is this. When you've got this object here, which is built out of this so-called metric field, it's a function of this metric field that permeates the whole of space-time, you can define curves which are straight. And they're precisely the, the kinds of curves that define the trajectories of freely moving bodies. Remember, the trajectory of a body through space and time is just going to be a curve in space-time. And you want there to be special curves that describe the motion of these free bodies that are acting under their own steam, as it were. And Einstein originally thought that it was merely axiomatic that free bodies follow the so-called geodesics, the straight lines associated with that structure. So once you have a solution of these field equations, you can determine what a freely falling body is going to do in space-time. And that tells you what a planet's going to do, because a planet is a freely falling object. And this is how Einstein originally predicted the so-called anomalous advance of the perihelion of Mercury, the first great success of general relativity. A very tiny anomaly between the predictions of Newtonian theory of gravity and the actual behavior of the planet Mercury. But that makes it sound as if space somehow is directly acting on matter. Thankfully, this time, matter is acting back on space because, of course, if you, if you change the, the matter degrees of freedom, you'll also change the so-called gravitational degrees of freedom or the metric field degrees of freedom. But then something very remarkable happened. In 1918, Eddington had the idea, but wait a second, you shouldn't have to postulate that freely falling bodies move along the geodesics. You should prove it. I mean, after all, isn't this equation telling you how the metric field and matter interact? And indeed, he did prove it. And indeed, between 1918 and 1927, about 10 publications appeared by well-known names in the field, all showing that actually the geodesic principle was not a postulate, it was a theorem. And then Einstein, in 1927, who never read anything, <laughs> discovered it himself. And he wrote a paper with a man called Grommer, and he produced this theorem by himself, 1927. And ten, roughly 10 years later, he did much more systematic work with Hoffman and Infeld to the same effect. And this was an incredibly important result in general relativity, and there's no doubt that Einstein himself regarded it as extremely important. Space is acting on matter, and it's, it's a consequence of the very field equations themselves. How can empty space tell matter what to do? Wouldn't Leibniz have been surprised at this? How can something so insubstantial as space itself, or space-time, tell matter what to do. Well, let me put that question aside for a moment and ask, in what sense does matter act back on space? Well, as I said before, if you change the distribution of matter, you're going to change the G. And we have to ask ourselves, how can it be that the presence of matter, if it's somehow deformed, can change the very nature of space or the curvature of space or something around it. And what does the curvature of space really mean? It, again, is space a substance? Is space-time a substance? Is this a new form of sort of matter that, we, that, we, that we're understanding? 
But let's, let's ask the physics to speak for itself. This thing here is a well-defined field. It's a tensor field, that's to say it's, it has many components, it has a certain kind of mathematical structure. Who's to say it's space itself? What is its connection with space-time? Why don't we just call it something like the gravitational field? Well, the reason that we don't that we call it space-time rather than the rather than the gravitational field is this, because it determines the geodesic motion of test bodies, of freely moving bodies. And by the way, this is the first time we have an understanding of inertia that's not miraculous, because our body's doing what it's doing, not because there's this kind of global orchestrated miracle, but because it's being told what to do by the field equation. And this is a, a very, very profound shift in our understanding of inertia in general relativity. But also, if you pick up a textbook on, on relativity theory, you'll see that the geometric structure of space-time has these things called light cones, and the light cones represent the possible paths, trajectories of light. So light rays trace out the so-called null geodesics. These are precisely the geodesics associated with the light cones. And furthermore, if we have rulers built out of ordinary matter and we have clocks, as we saw before, a clock is a wayweiser of space-time. It's a hydrometer of space. It's measuring distances. If you have a rod, for example, that will also be measuring distances of a different kind. It's called space-like distances. And this gives rise to what's called the chronometric significance of the gravitational field. And it's because of this tie-up between the objects, the material objects, such as rulers and clocks and light, that this primordial structure, the G, suddenly starts to look geometrical. So now the question is, where does that come from? And the answer is, it does not come from the field equations. In other words, the geometric property of the so-called metric field this dynamical field in general relativity, is not its natural birthright. It follows from further assumptions that we plug into the theory that ordinarily go under the name of the strong equivalence principle. And it is very easy to construct theories in which this strong equivalence principle breaks down and light rays do not trace out null geodesics. They do not move on the light cones. In fact, our best theory of light tells us this. The best theory of light we have that comes out of quantum electrodynamics tells us that in very, very special situations, there are minute deviations from the behavior of light and motion along the so-called light cones. Rulers, rods, and clocks survey the field well. That, again, depends on the nature of the, the way matter fields, which go into defining that T tensor, couple themselves with G. Again, we can develop theories that are consistent with Einstein's field equations in which this relationship breaks down. And one of the things that I've tried to do in my book is to discuss some very interesting recent results, recent theories, alternative theories of gravity, that in many ways have exactly the same structural form as Einstein's theory, but they introduce two metrics. These are so-called bimetric theories. And there are several of them in the literature, and they're very interesting because Partly they're developed in a way to get rid of the problem of dark matter. Maybe you've heard of this problem. That in order to explain the behavior of galactic stars inside galaxies, you have to postulate something that nobody understands. 
namely the presence of dark matter, that makes the outermost stars accelerate faster than you would expect them to. So there are mo you can now modify the theory by introducing a bimetric theory, two of these tensor fields rather than one, in such a way that you can explain this anomalous motion of the stars and the galaxies. If you've got two metric fields, at most one of them can be read off by rods and clocks. Which one? Depends on the details. So it's this kind of thing that I'm that I'm interested in and that I that I discuss in the book. And I want to finish with a quote from Einstein. This is a 1948 letter to Barrett, and I'm very grateful to my, my graduate student, Dennis Lentil, for bringing this to my attention. And this is what he says. I do not agree with the idea that the general theory of relativity is geometrizing physics or the gravitational field. This is a remarkable statement, because we always read that general relativity is the geometrization of space-time, the curvature of space-time, which is telling bodies how to move. The concepts of physics have always been geometrical concepts. And I cannot see why the G field, which is the solution of Einstein's field equations, should be called more geometrical than, for instance, the electromagnetic field, or the distance of bodies in Newtonian mechanics. The notion probably comes from the fact that the mathematical origin of the G field is the Gauss-Riemann theory of the metric continuum. This is just differential geometry, which is the basic mathematics of general relativity, which we are want to look at as part of geometry. But there's geometry in mathematics and there's geometry in physics. And one has to be careful to distinguish them. I'm convinced, however, that this distinction between geometrical and other kinds of fields is not logically founded. One could spend a long time trying to un unpack this statement. We don't have time today. I think it is a truly remarkable statement. But I think it is very hard to understand this statement within the context of the present standard or conventional literature in the philosophy of space and time. And I like to think that some of the arguments in my book at least go some way to making a little bit of sense of Einstein's time. Thank you very much. I heard somebody said uh, the theory of relativity has been misused or overused in social sciences. Uh, I just uh, wonder how you respond to this view of point. Thank you. Do you mean the word relativity has been misused? <laughs> 
misuse or overuse in social sciences. Overly emphasized, yes. Einstein himself famously remarked that he wished he could call this theory the theory of invariance rather than the theory of relativity. And in fact, the, 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 the expression theory of relativity was, was occurred several years after his 1905 paper. But it is, after all, just a name. It probably doesn't do justice to the, to the conceptual nature of both special and general theories of relativity. But at least we know what it, at least we know what they mean, at least to some degree. So, towards the beginning, Harvey, you said, I mean, sort of you. Were, sort of describe the view you were going to be opposing in t um, regarding length contraction and time dilation. And you said some people just say it's merely perspectival, it's merely a consequence of the relativity of simultaneity. But it is a consequence of the relativity of simultaneity. I mean, I agree with you that that's the wrong way to think about things, that it's merely perspectival. But it is a consequence of the relativity of simultaneity. Like once we've made a convention about simultaneity, and what you should say is, the relativity of simultaneity is also a real thing, you know, a real feature of the world. Right. It's not just a perspectival right. matter. Right. Well, thanks very much, Nick. I'm glad you asked that. I couldn't disagree with you more. <laughs> the relativity of simultaneity, if you think about it algebraically, just think about it algebraically, you can write down linear coordinate transformations, which have the usual interpretation in terms of you know, they'll contain terms that refer to length contraction, time dilation, and so on, in which the relativity of simultaneity is neither sufficient nor necessary for length contraction. First of all, I'm just saying that's, a that's an algebraic fact. Secondly, if you think about it geometrically, a physical body like this that's moving through time, of course, is going to define in space-time a world tube. Now, there's no doubt that because of the, because of the nature of special relativity, Different observers, because there's a relativity of simultaneity, will slice that world tube at different angles. It's just another way of talking about the relativity of simultaneity. But the length or the width or the extension of those cross sections, how are they determined? You have to have the scale factor. And that all depends on the metric. I mean, we draw these things on two-dimensional pieces of paper and we, we draw this world tube, and then we draw different slices along it. But of course, we're using two-dimensional Euclidean geometry to see a change in the lengths of these lines. But you can't read it off Euclidean geometry. You have to use the Minkowski metric. Where does that come from? That doesn't, that's something well over and above the relativity of simultaneity. After all, the relativity of simultaneity, in a sense, simply reflects the conventions that we use to synchronize distant clocks in each frame. I would say the relativity of simultaneity is the least important aspect of special relativity, not the most important. It's the least important aspect. It simply reflects the fact that in each coordinate system that we use, that all related, all these inertial coordinate systems that are regarded as equivalent because of the relativity principle, we spread time through space, we synchronize our clocks through space in a way that's most convenient. And so we use the Poincaré-Einstein convention. Now, the minute you introduce that convention in all frames, okay, you end up getting the relativity of simultaneity. That's quite independent of the invariance of the speed of light. 
And you need to have the invariance of the speed of light and a further scale factor that algebraically will determine what your length contraction and time dilation factors are. So I would say, again, I just stress, relativity of simultaneity is neither necessary nor sufficient for length contraction. Well, my question follows on because I wanted to ask you to say more about uh, the thing you mentioned that you said you wouldn't say about, namely that in also in Newtonian mechanics, simultaneity is conventional. So right. you could add okay. what you just said. Okay. I mean, most of the time we think. <coughs> Jeremy was, was asking me to say a little bit more about the claim that I attributed to Poincare and to some extent to myself to the effect that there is a conventionality of simultaneity even in classical mechanics. Okay. And here's the way the argument goes if you're going to measure the speed of anything, it doesn't have to be light any signal you like, if you're going to measure the one-way speed, you have to know the time that it takes to go between two points that are separated in space. If you're going to measure that distance, you need to have rulers. That's okay. Of course, there's some convention as to whether the rulers measure meters or, or inches or something like that, but that's, that's trivial. The question is the time that it takes to go to, to for, that, for that signal or the body, whatever it is, to move between point A and point B. Well, how do you measure it? You've got to have a clock at the beginning and you have to have a clock at the end. And they have to be synchronized. And how do you synchronize them? Well, you have to synchronize them according to some procedure. And what is it? And if you didn't, if you didn't choose that procedure, yes, you would get a different value for the speed, but would it, would it make any difference? Whenever we talk about one-way speeds of anything, whether it's in relativity, whether it's in classical mechanics, we have to say how we spread time through space. We have to say how we synchronize distant clocks. That's the first point. But everyone's going to say, ah, but in, in classical mechanics, there's a natural way of synchronizing clocks. Whereas in special relativity, it's more complicated. And to some extent, that's true. I'm, I, I don't wish to say that there's no difference, but I want to stress a little bit more why... The, the fact that when we overlook the conventionality in classical mechanics, we're making a, 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 a mistake. And the reason is the following. I started re earlier referring to Newton's first law of motion, which says that all freely moving, moving bodies move in straight line at uniform speeds with respect to an inertial frame. What is the symmetry group, if I can use a technical term? In other words, what are the group of transformations in the coordinates to preserve that law, and it turns out to be the linear group. And the linear group includes resynchronizations of clocks. It means I can shift my simultaneity planes, the way that I spread time through space, any which way I like, as long as it's a linear transformation, and that law is preserved. So the law of inertia does not pick out any kind of privileged simultaneity relation. It's impossible. You need more structure. Well, what is the structure? You need forces. The next thing in Newtonian mechanics after inertia are forces. Forces are precisely the agencies that force the bodies away from their inertial paths. So what kinds of forces are we talking about? What's the most famous force in Newtonian mechanics? It's the gravitational force. It's action at a distance. So we choose to spread time through space in such a way 
that that force of gravity turns out to be instantaneous in all directions. It's a very natural convention, but you won't go to jail if you change it. In other words, suppose I made it, I synchronized my clocks in such a way that I spread my clocks through space, or a better way of saying it is I introduced a coordinate system that had a temporal parameter that spread through space in such a way that gravity goes backwards in time in that direction and comes forwards in time in this direction, but of course, it comes back exactly the time I leave it. It leaves. Are you going to make any predictions that are wrong in Newtonian mechanics? You will not. But you have to compensate in your equations. You've introduced a stupid coordinate system, and you've, you've got to compensate in the form of the laws. But this is just a trivial case of what in, in general relativity we'd call general covariance. So there is a natural way of spreading time through space in classical mechanics, but it depends on factors such as the, the nature of the forces in the world. Now, in special relativity, the Michelson-Morley experiment likewise established that the two-way speed of light is isotropic. It's the same in all directions. That's exactly what the Michelson-Morley experiment established. If I send out a light beam and make it bounce back to me, the to and fro speed I don't need two clocks to measure that, I only need one. So it's got nothing to do with how I spread time through space. It's the same in every direction. Now I'm asking the question, what about the one-way speed of light? How do I measure that? Well, I, I'm back to the old problem. I have to have synchronized clocks. Who in their right minds would, would synchronize <laughs> clocks at a distance to make the one-way speed of light depend on direction when the two-way speed doesn't? So that's a very natural convention, too. But that doesn't stop it from being a convention. Again, you're not going to go to jail if you choose another one. You can artificially introduce anisotropies in space associated with a one-way speed of light. And of course, then there are many papers on this in the literature. In fact, you can do the whole of special relativity using these, these non-standard coordinate systems. And in fact, coming back to your point, Nick, you can choose these synchrony conventions in such a way as to get rid of the relativity of simultaneity altogether. So it can't be that fundamental. But you still have all the same predictions as in ordinary special relativity. It's just that you've made your equations look complicated. So it's in that sense that I mean, even in classical mechanics, we have to be careful before we think that simultaneity is a cut and dried issue. It depends on factors such as the existence of certain kinds of forces. 